Hello and welcome to the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Laura Perkis, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today I'm going to be speaking to David Inglesfield, who is the Chief Executive of National Advice Business IWP, and we're going to be talking about the future of the IWP brand, what the business looks for in its acquisitions and its due diligence process, and plans for later this year, including the launch of its own Advisor Academy. Um, So hi David, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I thought to kick off, for anyone who doesn't know much about IWP, could you explain a bit about the business and its history and what it is you're trying to achieve? So, I mean, IWP is just over two years old now, um, and um, there's a couple of kind of things that are a little bit different about the model. Um, um, what, what we're doing, what, we, what the whole point of IWP is that we're building a a national brand that represents independent advice. Um, I've always worked in wealth management, but mostly in big banks, as it happens, I'm not an IFA. And um, one of the things I think is very interesting is that everybody recognises that the market is growing, that more and more people need advice, and we kind of all know that for the obvious reasons. Um, And yet, if you go and talk to most people who don't work in the industry and don't know anything about it, Um, most people are pretty confused by our industry. Um, If you said to people, you know, where would you go to get really good advice about sorting out your pension? Most of the time you get a blank look, actually. There aren't really any, you know, kind of well-established, really trusted brands out there. Um, As everybody knows, you know, the industry is quite fragmented. There are 5,000 firms. There's a small number of uh, large firms. Um, But I just think it's quite interesting for such a big and important industry I think there's quite a big gap in in kind of consumer engagement with the industry. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, And we invest in firms that we think are fundamentally good businesses. And the other thing that I find really fascinating is, you know, if you spoke spoke to an ordinary person uh, in in any high street up and down the land about our industry, you'd get a bit of a blank and confused expression. But if you went into the kind of reception lobby of any one of our firms, or indeed many other IFA firms around the country, and spoke to a client at at random, of course, what you would find is that that client was extremely appreciative and really valued and really trusted the advice and the service they get. Um, And these firms, you know, never lose a client. Most of them will tell you they don't do any marketing because they haven't got capacity to take on more clients. So there's a strange dichotomy between really, really high levels of quality advice and service and client satisfaction um, among the kind of many local firms, um, and yet this this sort of um, you know quite confused and muddied and dissonant picture at national level. So that's really what we're about. We are bringing together good quality firms, building a business from the bottom up. The only thing that those firms don't have really is scale. They're really, really good businesses. If you, you know, took any business in any sector and said it's got the kind of client loyalty that these businesses have and people never leave and they get all their business from the you know, that's an exceptional business. Um, but, of course, these firms are all tiny. Mm-hmm. The costs of doing business are increasing. The owners are all approaching retirement age. So they're not going to be there in 10 years' time unless somebody does something. So that's really our, uh, you know, our kind of um, angle on the market, if you like. So we're... We're building a national brand, but we're building it out of the sort of roots of the, you know, really good quality firms that exist around the country. So we've been going for about two years. We've got, uh, I think, I think it's about twenty-six acquisitions that we've made. Um, we've had a lot of interest because people like the continuity of the model. I talk to a lot of people who are considering their options, and one of the key things that they say to me uh, is that, you know, we're very 
um, appreciative of the trust that the clients have placed, placed in, in us uh, personally and in, 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 in the business. We feel we owe our clients a debt of gratitude. We value our client relationships. We've now got to the point where we need to do something about the business because we, we, we need to be able to retire at some point. But the one thing we're never going to do is kind of sell our clients down the river. Um, and, and that's you know why people come to us because our model is all about continuity and that's that's not just because we're nice people. It's because I think there is enormous commercial value in being nice to your clients. Yeah. Um, it seems to be blindingly obvious that if you are obsessive about client care and continuity and not letting your clients around, then you're going to have a good business. So, you know, um, that, that's how we think about it. So when you're thinking about acquiring a business, what is it exactly that you're looking for? And is there anything that you could find that might put you off acquiring it? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean... Um, I'd say the great majority of firms that come to us, there's, there's obviously lots of firms I imagine that we never get to talk to because they're not interested in our opposition as kind of horses for courses. But, um, you know, people come to us fundamentally because they want their clients looked after. And in almost all cases, part of the context of that is that the business has been built up by one or more owners, usually over quite a long time, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Um, and it's actually a very simple business. You know, my background's in banking. I'm not an IFA, as I said. Um, banking is, is a fairly complicated business. One of the reasons it goes wrong quite often. You know, things blow up. Um, IFAs don't have a huge amount to go wrong. There obviously are challenges. There's been quite a lot of challenges in the industry. But fundamentally, these are relatively simple businesses. And if you've got a firm that's been built up over a long time, by one person or a team of people, they've got very loyal clients. You know, that's fundamentally a good business. And that's really what we're looking for, a business that's got really solid foundations and then has got growth potential. And, you know, we can we can grow that business, we can bring you more advisors, uh, we can give them more resources and we can grow that firm. Um, and obviously we then do due diligence, as you'd expect, and, and you know, uh, there are, you know, the... the, the, the the standard of, 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 of compliance due diligence that we see is, is generally, uh, you know, not, not, not bad, uh, given, given the resources available to small firms. You know, most of them are trying very hard to do the right thing, and on the whole, they do it pretty well. But obviously, from time to time, you come across businesses that um, uh, either we just fundamentally don't, don't agree with the way they're doing it, or there is stuff that is, needs to be fixed, and, and it's just too big, uh, you know, for us to take on at that point. It's relatively unusual. I'd say, I would say to acquisitions, you know, we will, I absolutely guarantee that when we do our compliance due diligence report, there will be some findings, there will be some stuff to fix. There's always things you can do better. Mm -hmm. But most things are fixable. Um, so, it's, you know, it is relatively unusual for us to say, actually, we don't think we can move forward. But obviously it does, does happen. So what's your due diligence process like and, and who do you use to do it? Uh, we use external consultants. We use a firm called TCC, who are quite a well-known compliance consultancy. So they look at um, the you know policies, procedures, quality of advice. Um, uh, the advisors individually are now uh, certified, as are the the managers under SMCR. So we have to uh, individually approve uh, the people uh, the, the, in, who are doing um, uh, uh, certified functions who are coming across. Um, we do financial due diligence, which um, we use accounting firm RSM to do, so we, we kind of kick the tyres on the numbers. Uh, and then we do our own commercial due diligence. We get into the sort of granularity of, of the business. You know, a classic one is a sort of age profile of clients. You know, some businesses have got quite quite elderly client mm -hmm. book. Uh, you're kind of working out how long they're going to stay alive for on average. Um, 
So, you know, to okay. me, it's a comprehensive review of um, of the firm. As I say, the, you know, most commonly what that is telling us is that fundamentally it's a decent business and there are things that we will improve as um, as we bring them into the group. We, we spend, on, on average, about 15% of revenue more on every firm we acquire than they were spending on themselves before we bought them. Uh, and that's, at one level, that's kind of obvious, because if you look at the EBITDA margin of big national firms, it's much lower than the EBITDA margin of uh, small firms. And, you know, there are lots of things that you want to do as a big firm to increase standards. And some of that is, you know, we spend more on compliance because um, we just do more. Some of it is because we are actively investing for the future, like things like our academy programme or the, the money we spend on technology, which, um, you know, small firms just don't do. So I think you said you've acquired 26 firms so far and you've acquired a number of regional hub firms. Um, Do you have a target number that you're looking to work towards in a certain period of time? Yeah, we we organise the business around what we call hubs, which are kind of regional firms, usually a little bit larger. The the key distinction of the hubs is that they're run by a management team that wants to sort of stick around for the long term. Obviously, a lot of people are coming to us because at some point they plan to retire, Not, not usually immediately, actually, most commonly they're coming to us to sort of give up the burden, the responsibility of running the firm, and then they like to carry on advising. Um, But the hubs have got regional CEOs who represent IWP around the country, uh, and they are our our local management uh, teams. Um, I mean, in terms of where we want to get to, our our target is £15 billion of client assets. It doesn't really matter to us how many firms that is, no. I'm sure there is a, there's a number in our model, but I don't know what it is. In terms of hubs, we expect to get to maybe 20 around the country. And that's really about getting geographic coverage. We've got 12 at the moment. We've got a few kind of blank spots on the map. Yeah. So we're really trying to build up a national network so that you know clients have access to a locally-based firm if they do want to go and meet people in person. You talked a bit about brand earlier as well and that you want to create this a brand that people recognise but as far as I'm aware so far you're not you've not imposed kind of firms changing their name to IWP is that a future plan for everyone to become an IWP firm? Yeah absolutely so yeah I mean the branding strategy is a co-brand strategy uh, we have actually do, we've done quite a lot of work on planning the branding we, we consciously haven't rolled it out uh, yet uh, because it's it's been a bit early we want to get to a, we want to get a bit, little bit bigger to a point where it means something really when, when we start to roll it out but when we do do that um, <coughs> our naming strategy is that our hub firms keep their name because they are um, you know they have reputations in their community these are genuinely local businesses they're run by local management teams all of our local management teams retain some of the equity interest in that business so you've got genuine accountability in the local community and i think that's very important and we know that clients like that we know professional introducers recognize and value that so we will keep those names and we will use iwp as a prefix so you'll you know, the designation will be you know iwp murdoch if you're down in hampshire or iwp alexander grace Middles, or whatever it might be okay. uh, and then there'll be a kind of common visual identity that will, will you know make it look like it's all part of one group so so you're absolutely right if you look at the firms today you wouldn't know from the outside that they're part of iwp WP, uh, but that will change over the next uh, year or so, I would think. We just, uh, our financial year starts on the 1st of April, so we've just entered a new uh, planning and financial year, and it's something we expect to get done in the current financial year. This might be a massive long shot, but have you made any recent acquisitions that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, well, we, we have, yeah, I'm happy to answer it. I can't uh, give you names until we announce them. But the reason for that is very simply that we give 
the acquisition time to, to let their clients know before we announce it publicly. Uh, no, no other sort of mystery to it. Um, the, staff will, the staff will know straight away, but it takes a little bit of time to get around clients. A lot of people like to speak to clients personally, which is, you know, is, is understandable. So there's usually a lag of a few weeks between us completing on an acquisition and, and making a public announcement. Uh, we actually completed our last one yesterday. We've got, uh, I think, four that are... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be completing subject to uh, change of control approval over the next few weeks and we've got um, quite a lot more that are at different stages of the process. Um, so we have we have a lot of interest and we have quite a large ongoing pipeline of, of, of people that are going through the acquisition process. It takes us roughly four months-ish to actually do an acquisition from start to finish, yeah. which is relatively quick by industry standards and that's partly because we try and parallel process the work we do the due diligence and the legals we apply for change of control all at the same time just because we think it's nobody's interest to kind of keep the pace up so how are you contacting firms about um acquisitions i mean are you approaching them or are you finding that they come to you um it's a bit of both really i mean people uh, come to us and obviously we're, we're we're becoming more known uh, and people are getting to hear about us so people get in touch directly which is great um i have probably four or five meetings a week with people that want to have a chat just thinking about their options mm-hmm. uh we get businesses introduced to us by brokers and, and other sorts of people so so it's a complete mixture uh, i would say really um i think the, the, the key thing for sellers is always timing I, I hardly ever talk to anybody who says you know thanks so much but i'm just not fundamentally not interested people are usually interested but then it's a question of is this yeah, it's a big decision, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you build, build this business up for 25 years, selling it is a big decision and, and deciding when you want to do that is, is an important decision. So what is the process normally in terms of people, if they're thinking about retiring, um, bowing out of the business? Do, do you find that people want to stick around for a while or do, do they kind of just sell and then leave? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's very much up to them, actually. As I say, it's interesting because I kind of assumed originally, one would naturally assume that the basic model was that people sell their business and then go off and play golf, whatever it is they want to do. And I'd say that's actually very, very rare in our business. I'd say 90% plus of the time people say to me, look, I want to sell the business, I need to sell the business, it's just not practical for a business of this kind of size, you know, with the regulatory capital and PI costs, and, you know, and I don't have the time, it's hard to recruit people. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually think it's very hard indeed to run a small IFA practice, obviously, I don't know how people do it uh, sometimes. Um, but having got through that and given up that responsibility, they usually turn around and say, do you mind if I stick around and keep advising for a while, because I, I really enjoy it, and I think I'd be awfully bored if, if I didn't. Uh, we say, great, you know, and I would say, well, if you want to work, you know, part-time at some point, that's also great. So I think the reality is people then sort of wind down over a few years as uh, as suits them personally, and that, I would say, is, is much, much more common than people saying that they want to actually sort of stop working and go off, because most people don't know what they do if they didn't have clients to talk to them, I think. Yeah, it's a big, big jump to go from running a business to nothing. <laughs> no, I think so, yeah. But I think also the world's changing, isn't it? The world of work is changing. You know, people people just live in different ways now. They, they've got more of a mixed life and they'll do a bit of bit of client work, a bit of golf and a bit of whatever else they want to do, I suppose. But we like that. It's all part of the continuity. Yeah. You know, from our point of view, having people sticking around in whatever capacity or whatever kind of part-time basis is a good thing. They've got a huge wealth of knowledge and experience. They've got a lot of credibility with clients, and it's, yeah. it's great to have them around. 
So as the chief executive of a national advice business, um, what is your biggest regulatory concern at the moment? Or, you know, what's going on in the market that, that's concerning you? I mean, in terms of regulatory change, there's obviously a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on with regulatory capital at the moment. And, and I don't think the uh, kind of final conclusions on that are uh, have been announced yet or are clear. But, you know, pretty obvious that the direction of travel with that sort of thing is increasing the cost of doing business. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's an advantage for firms like ours because obviously it, it makes it um, easier for large firms and harder for small firms. So I think there are. There are some trends which inevitably will continue to drive uh, firms to look for a suitable home, uh, whether it's with us or with somebody else. Um, I think it's, you know, a lot of people sort of like to have a bit of a go at the FCA. I think the FCA has got an incredibly difficult job. Uh, I think it is really, really hard to to regulate an industry of this size, scope, uh, this degree of fragmentation uh, to meet all the expectations that, that, that um, you know the, the public opinion and political opinion kind of voice on the FCA mm-hmm. um, further trying to sort of close the, 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 the stable door when the horse is bolted. Um, I mean, we we you know we obviously work very closely with the FCA. Uh, obviously, when we're making acquisitions and making change in control approvals, we um, we went to see them when we set up the firm and had a general. Uh, discussion about our plans, which was actually really, really constructive, and we got some really good feedback. Uh, if we're doing asset purchases, we um, we, we make a principle eleven notification, um, and um, you know work with the FCA to um, you know really, I suppose you know as a responsible operator in the sector, kind of try and help them do their do their job. But yeah. I do think they've got quite a challenging uh, mandate. Um, and it, 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 asset purchase is quite an interesting um, area because, of course, unlike a, a share purchase acquisition, it's a one-way notification. The FCA doesn't approve asset purchases. We um, we know them, and we want to ensure that clients are looked after and that client communications are very clearly handled when we do an asset purchase um, and that funds uh, are left in the selling company for as long as they need to be um, until the FCA is happy to deauthorise it. So, you know, we run a, a very proactive process to do those things. As I say, we, we, we tell the FCA that's what we're doing uh, under a principle 11 notification, but that's a very one-way thing. The FCA doesn't have the mandate in that process to come back and talk to us about it. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, you're sort of lobbing messages into a black hole and hoping that they get received and understood. So, you know, I think there are some aspects of the way that... Um, regulation works that will, um, will will doubtless change over time. But but I think when you step back and look at it, I always, I always feel quite sorry for the FCA because I just think they've got, you know, they are the repository of everybody's sort of hopes and fears for the industry. And, and, and it's very, very difficult, I think, to, um, to discharge that kind of mandate. If you read our comments section. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you can understand if you're a practitioner and... and you know, the rules change every five minutes and, um, you, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult for practitioners. I'm not <laughs> saying that the FCA gets everything right. They clearly don't. But I do think they've got quite a difficult, quite a sticky wicket, actually, quite a difficult uh, hand to play. And, and that doesn't necessarily make it easy for anybody. As I say, we, you know, anybody of our sort of size uh, is going to be really concerned to ensure that we, you know, build a business that's got a great reputation, a great regulatory reputation, as well as a great, uh, well as a great client reputation um but 
it's it, to the extent that you're having to sort of guess or, or try and work out what you think uh, good looks like, it's harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that there are you know clear there's clear guide, guidelines as to what good look, good looks like, it's easier. And I think you know the industry generally has quite a lot of um, ambiguity about uh, around some of these issues that makes it harder for everybody. As a as a big firm or as a firm of your size, do you have a lot? of conversations with the FCA about that, about making things clear, or do you have a lot of input? On I mean, we, I wouldn't say we have a lot of conversations. Uh, I mean, IWP as a group is not regulated because uh, we don't conduct any regulated activity. We do talk to the FCA. Um, uh, we, we formally submit, as I say, change in control and principle 11 notifications, and, and, you know, if they come back on, on those, then we have a, a formal dialogue around that, and we, from time to time, reach out to them informally. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, we, 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 I, I, I think it's an area that generally um, the, the, the escape for the industry and the regulator to, to maybe work together more closely to think through some of these uh, issues about how the industry is most effectively regulated going forward. So I wanted to ask you about an advice business, Bartholomew Hawkins Limited. So in 2019, you acquired Bartholomew Hawkins Asset Management, which had acquired the trade and assets of the limited business earlier in the year. The limited business is now in liquidation, and you were in a formal dispute with that business last year, which we wrote an article about. But I wondered if you'd like to explain, in your own words, what happened with both the acquisition and the dispute. Uh, yeah, sure. I, mean, I, th- I think, to be honest, what you've reported is pretty accurate. Um, so, you know, we, we, we acquired the asset management business. Uh, the asset management business had acquired the assets of the advice business. Uh, the advice business had done quite a lot of DBTs, uh, some of which were pretty steel. From our point of view, if a firm has done a large volume of DBTs, uh, it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with the quality of those. It's just that it's not really cost-effective to try and do due diligence on them. It costs something like £500 a file to review a DBT file, uh, and we look at every one, um, not necessarily before completion, but, but pre-completion and then post-completion. We look at every file, uh, and obviously that's not you know, it's not practical and not cost-effective if you've got hundreds. So, yeah. so we don't buy... Uh, firms that have done a large volume of DPTs. I mean, I think the key thing about uh, that transaction, like many others, and it comes back to what I was saying about asset purchases, is that we, um, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody like us buys a book of clients from a company, um, then that company no longer has any clients. It's now got a load of money on its balance sheet. It's got the proceeds of that sale. Um, the clients have to be looked after. The clients are now being looked after by the new owner, the seller, for whatever reason, has decided they're not going to, uh, don't want to continue in business. Um, and the FCA at that point, um, you know, has the power and uses the power, and in the case of BHR, did use the power to decide how much of that cash it wants to stay in the company and to decide whatever action it wants to take as part of its deauthorization approval. So, um, you know, I think in some ways it's quite a good example. We you know, we do what we can, ultimately, we're not a regulator, we don't control all the moving parts. Um, but um, we ensure that we, we essentially are putting the regulator in the position that they can take any action that they might want to take at that point, and, and, and they get a principle 11 notification to let them know that it's happening. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's kind of how we see it, really. The dispute that you reported on was a, a very specific uh, dispute uh, about access to intelligent office, yeah. which is over. I mean, as, as I think you, you, you saw the, 
I think you read the court report, um, yeah. and I think you reported on that, and um, that's the end of it, really. So, so I don't think there's anything more to say about that anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think, as I say, I think the, um, the report you wrote, I think, was accurate. I suppose to finish off, I should probably ask if you've got any plans coming up or, you know, any, any developments in the business that you can talk about. Um, I mean, the way we think about growing the business is we, we've got, we call it kind of three pillars, people, brand and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think those are kind of uni- unique to us. I think actually they're broader themes that are relevant to the industry. The people one's pretty obvious because it's all about bringing the next generation of advisors um, through, we all know, um, why that's an issue, that the advisor population is, is static and, and we're developing an academy programme to, um, uh, to bring a lot more people through, uh, in, in our case, particularly targeting um, what I call kind of mid-career changes, um, people coming out of other professions uh, for whom this, this profession is, is, is relevant. I think what, what, one of the sort of several oddities about uh, our business is that, you know, most people don't really have much of an impression of what being an IFA is. If you spoke to most people and said, you know, what career choices are you considering, uh, it wouldn't come up very often. Uh, and if you pitched it to somebody, you'd probably again get a bit of a blank and confused expression. But actually, it's an absolutely brilliant profession, I think. You know, it's really interesting. It's got a really good mix of technical skills and people skills. It's, it's well paid. You can work flexibly. It's got, you know, great uh, career prospects. So I, I think there's a really, really strong career opportunity to uh, to market to people, um, and that's that's a big part of our plans uh, for growth. Um, and ultimately, you know, the industry will not survive uh, uh, other than by bringing a large cohort of new um, advisors um, through. Um, so I think, I think that's a really big um, theme. And, and although a number of people have started to do academy programs, I don't think they're anywhere near the level yet to meet the the potential demand. So we're intending to bring uh, our first recruits in in September. Um, We intend to start relatively uh, small scale. We plan to bring six people in September and six in January uh, because we want to to kind of test the process, partly because it involves quite a bit of remote learning now. We want to kind of tune that and get it right. Um, So that's what we plan to do. So over the course of the next kind of financial year, we, we hope to bring 12 people in. Um, as, it, as it happens, that's sort of roughly one for each of our hubs uh, at the moment, but as I say, those numbers will grow. Longer term, we want to have 50 people a year coming out of the academy within about three years, so quite a significant yeah. uh, flow of, of, of new talent um, coming into the industry. And, and also, not, not just new recruits, but also quite actively investing in the professional development of our existing uh, staff. Uh, we've got a lot of talent in the business. A lot of people already do exams, and we can help them with that. We can fast track uh, them. We can give them more support with exams. I was actually really pleased. I did an all staff um, Zoom call a few months ago. It's first first one I'd done. We had about at that point about two hundred people in the group, and I talked a bit about our plans. And at the end, I sort of said, "Any you know, have you got any questions?" And I had a few questions, but most of them were actually about the academy and about what exams and qualifications people could do, and if they were chartered, could they, if they were um, diploma qualified, could they become chartered? Could they become chartered? All this sort of thing. Um, so it was um, it was great actually, and it shows you that there is you know a lot of demand for, for, from our existing people to to progress their professional qualifications. So I think that's a, that's a really good sign. Yeah, absolutely. That that's great news. Um. Well, thank you so much, David. I think we'll leave it there um, 
thank you for joining me and thank you everyone for listening if you have any questions for david or any questions about anything you've heard feel free to get in touch you can find us at new model advisor on any social media otherwise have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you for listening Thank <laughs> you.